everyone. Welcome to the Parent Teacher Conference podcast. I'm your host, Braden Bell. We have a truly fantastic guest, so I don't want to take too long, but I do have a quick housekeeping thing or two. This is the sixth episode, and I have been so gratified with the response. From looking at the listening statistics, I think that releasing fortnightly, say every two weeks or so, may be more optimal than weekly. So I'm going to try that cadence for a little bit. If you really like the weekly, then please let me know. Or if you really like the fortnightly, bi-monthly, please let me know that as well. Finally, if you have ever been informed or if you've ever been inspired or just enjoyed anything at all about this podcast, would you please take a moment and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may use to access this podcast? Many, many thanks. Now, years ago, I needed to send a complex email to parents and students. It was a somewhat sensitive subject, and so I did what I frequently did. I sent it to today's guest, Mary Lara Philpot, and asked for her feedback. She gave a helpful critique and then said, also, maybe shorten a tad. That remains some of the best writing advice and, frankly, the best parenting advice I've ever received, and I've tried to follow it. However, in writing this introduction, it is really on, it is difficult to do that. It's difficult because I have known and admired Mary Lara now for about nine years. I was able to teach her children. We were peer parents. We collaborated on musicals. And frankly, no one can lay down the glitz and glitter like she can on an eighth grader getting ready for Aladdin. And not many people can glue a beard on an eighth grader like her as well. She has been a mentor and a teacher to me in so many ways. Mary Lara is one of the few people I have known who somehow I like and appreciate more and more with every interaction. If you've ever read me write about a story and it says something like, I once knew a parent who, and then the following anecdote talks about an insightful, thoughtful, or engaged parent, chances are pretty good that I'm discussing Mary Lara. It's not that she always has had the answers, but I have seen how intentionally she goes about asking questions, and I am delighted that her ruminations and meditations on her journey are now available to a much larger audience because of her books. Her success is truly a case of the nicest possible person achieving well-deserved recognition, and that recognition is significant. Mary Lara Philpott is the nationally best-selling author of I Miss You When I Blink, and the memoir Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives, which was named a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice and one of NPR's favorite books of the year in 2022. Her writing has been featured by the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Atlantic, among many other publications. Mary Lara was the Emmy Award-winning co-host of A Word on Words, the literary interview program on Nashville Public Television. She lives in Nashville, Tennessee with her family. From my own experience, I can say Mary Lara is wise and funny, gracious and feisty, and is able to write with a remarkable degree of emotional power. Her work is earthy and real, while also being transcendent and beautiful. However, personally, the word I find myself settling on most frequently when I think of her is generous. She is generous with her time, with encouragement, with assumptions she makes about others. She's generous in a hundred other ways that many of us wouldn't conceive of, nor, frankly, if we did, would most of us bother to act upon, but she always does. So today, I'm so happy to welcome Mary Lara Philpot, Parent Teacher Podcast. Welcome, Mary Lara. 
Hi. Oh my gosh. What an introduction. Thank you for bringing up the gluing beards on eighth graders. That is such a fond memory. And I'm still close with some of those eighth graders who are now high school seniors. And sometimes I look at them and I'm just like, oh, I remember how we had to use like nail polish remover to get that glue out of your eyebrows. I'm so sorry. And even then it took a while. Oh yeah. It was or, brutal. Or fun. the, you know how like you can, well, I can't, but some people can figure like the half-life of of, of like a you know radioactive mm -hmm. compound mm -hmm. right you can measure the half-life I feel like we probably should have tried to maybe measure the half-life of the glitter oh my the gosh that was like laying around on the floor after some of those shows <laughs> it's still there well thank you so much for coming so of everybody it, um I mentioned this in the introduction but Mary Lara has many gifts and talents um she is a really insightful author and she speaks, I think, maybe better than anyone I know about the vulnerabilities and the joys that we sometimes feel simultaneously um, that come with parenting and the way that we become so incredibly, um, well, I'll just say again, vulnerable and how we're opened up to, to a lot of worries and fears, but how that also ends up filling our lives as well. Would you mind just giving us a, a summary of your of your two books because they they speak to these concerns so beautifully? I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm glad you said vulnerable twice. It deserves to be said twice <laughs> because it's the the biggest the biggest shift that happens when you have children. You become so completely and utterly just you know a a little heart, a skinned heart, just out there in the world. Um, okay, so the two books are "I Miss You When I Blink." which is a memoir in essays or an essay collection, whatever you want to call it. It's kind of, um, when I describe the differences between the two, I always say, I miss you when I blink is really sort of anchored in my thirties. And it's, it covers everything from like young adulthood up through having children and getting through all those firsts with the kid, you know, and then kind of reaching that point where they finally go off to school and you look around and you go, Oh, is this my life now? What, what is my life now? It's, a, it's sort of a, gentler not quite midlife crisis but sort of small small moments of reinvention in life that's a lot of what that book is about and in that book you see me wrestling you see your you know the me character wrestling with my type a tendencies a lot i i am a recovering control freak and so it as everybody knows when you have a little kids and you're in that phase of life there's so little that you can control um and so I was really kind of trying to wrestle that demon down in that book. Um, Bomb Shelter, which uh, came out a few years later, is anchored about a decade later in life. Um, it reads more like a memoir. I think it's more of a cohesive single story. And it's about a two-year period in my life um, before, leading up to my first kid leaving the nest. And the thing that happens at the beginning of the book is that uh, my oldest, my son, um, has his first epileptic seizure. And so I realized with the clock ticking these, you know, two years until he leaves the nest, just how vulnerable he is and, and how much I want to be able to wrap him in bubble wrap and keep him safe and get him ready to go out in the world and have nothing else bad happen to him. And thinking about that kind of pushes me or pushes that me character into thinking about all the other ways that I want to keep the people around me safe and just how impossible that is and how 
if you let that impossibility get to you and think about it too much, it can really drag you down. And I'm not a drag you down person. I'm a pretty happy go lucky kind of look on the bright side kind of person. And so what you see me doing in that book is basically trying to get balance back between uh, my cheerfulness and my optimism and my terror, just my mortal terror for everyone I love. So that's, that's, they're both kind of books about regaining balance, but in different ways. Um, listeners, I, I would just tell you that they're both really, really worth your time. When she published, I miss you when I blink the response that I heard from so many people in, in our community and, and beyond, because I saw things like the, the reviews and things was many, many, many people, especially moms and women um, felt so incredibly seen. Like just the comment was, oh my gosh, this is, this is me. She's writing about me. This is how I feel. So if you ever need a dose of being seen and validated, um, or if you love someone who needs to be seen and validated, um, this book is a really good um, gateway, I think, in, into that. Bomb Shelter was honestly one of the most powerful books that I've read in a while. And I'm not just saying that because because Mary Laura and I are friends. Um, it it is beautifully written in a way. It, it, there's sort of a circular s- style to it, and that things kind of you keep you find out something, and then you find out more about it later, and then it's really quite powerful. Um, but it, it it has some just really powerful meditations. Do you mind just? sharing kind of the the whole idea of the the bomb shelter is fascinating like why you chose that title and the meaning yes. you you tease out of that can you talk about yes that? yes and this is a little bit of a spoiler for the book so if you're somebody who's going to read it and you're like I don't want to know anything else just hit the forward button like three times on your podcast um so the book had a different title in the beginning I was going to call it something else and then while I was working on it I got to the part where I was writing a, a particular chapter called bomb shelter and I realized this is actually the title for the book. And the reason I realized that is the chapter was about something I found out about my dad in midlife. I was in my 40s when my dad casually dropped into a phone conversation, something about, um, oh, I remember when you were a toddler, he had just he had actually just read this book by Garrett Graff about Raven Rock, which is one of the government's secret underground nuclear bunkers that they maintained during the 60s and 70s in case of nuclear war. So he had just read that book and I was like, oh, did you like your book? And he was like, yeah, it was great. You know, it reminds me of when you were a toddler and I worked there. And I was like, when you worked where? And he was like, you know, when I worked at Raven Rock. <laughs> I was like, what? when you worked in the government's secret nuclear bunker? And he was like, yeah, you know, it was top secret. So we couldn't talk about it then. Just dropped that into my life. And it made me look back and and see. It just made me think about my parents who were so young when I was a toddler. I mean, they were in their 20s. And this was my dad's job. He was a doctor and he was in the army. And somehow he had gotten the assignment of be one of the people who, uh, should the bomb drop, rush in an ambulance to the bunker. And be ready to receive the president and whoever else and keep them alive in the event of a nuclear holocaust. And so he was running drills for that all the time. Unbeknownst to me, just sitting there on the floor playing with my toys, my dad would, you know, an alarm would sound and my dad would leave and go practice going underground into this bunker that, you know, if you really think about it, it might temporarily keep people alive. But if we've just had a nuclear holocaust, there is going to come a time where people have to come out and it's not going to be good. It's a, there's a false sense of security 
to that. So it got me thinking about all the all of the constructs we have in our lives as people and as parents and as as loved ones that we think keep us safe, but really don't. And all the energy that I spend as a human being setting up things around everyone I love going, oh, this is going to keep us safe. This is going to, you know, everybody is going to be okay if I do all these things. And they're all just sort of false constructs. Um, so Bomb Shelter ended up becoming the title of the book. And it, and it took me like 75 tries to come up with a good subtitle, but love, time, and other explosives when I finally hit on it, I was like, oh, nailed it. But it took a while. I was going to say that was worth the wait. I, I, <laughs> it might, I mean, I didn't have to do the work, but it's such a perfect subtitle that I, I think it was, uh, I'm glad you were able to give it that time and that Noah was, was pushing you to, to get it done sooner. Um, I want to ask you to one of, I, I mean, there's so much I loved about the book. So listeners, I, every year, one of the great joys of my job is I chaperone a trip with our um, eighth graders to a, an amusement park and it's like a literally all day thing we leave at six and you know get home around 11 um, wow. 6, 6 a.m and I um, I always take a book or work on a writing a book or something and I had Mary Lara's book that day and I read it like straight through I just um, devoured it and Usually for nonfiction, I don't tend to do that. I usually have to take more time to think about it, but I raced through it and it it is just so compelling because we can all relate to these, the false constructs, the way we cling to um, trying to make people safe, trying to hold on to those we love. And at some point we all have to understand that it's, it is a losing game to do that. And her realization and how she realizes this and how she then articulates her takeaways and how we move forward are really, really powerful and inspiring. Um, and I'd love to talk more about that. But since we're talking about your dad, one of my favorite parts of the chapter or the book was the chapter. And I think this hit me so hard because I am a dad and um well, I'm not going to say more about it. Will you tell us about when you realized, <clears throat> once you knew about your dad's background, suddenly some some really quirky things he had done, all of a sudden had new meaning. And that, I just, this is such a <laughs> beautiful and powerful and really funny lesson though. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mentioned at the beginning of the book and, and then don't mention it again until much later, but um, when I was in college, my dad would send these care packages that used to just crack my roommate and me up. They were so funny. They were these like huge boxes full of canned food, like canned vegetables and ca like canned meat, which is gross and ravioli and like meals that just came like non-perishable foods that you could keep on a shelf for a long time. There was never a note in the box. It was just like box of canned stuff. And we used to actually joke, we would say, oh, look, he sent us another bomb shelter box because it was like, does he think we were like prepping for the apocalypse? What does he think we're going to do with it? We, and we would eat it, but also like it would, it would build up. We couldn't eat it fast enough because he kept sending more. So we would just push them under our beds. We had these boxes of canned food for my dad and I would give them to my hallmates and that kind of thing. And much later, you know, after he told me, you know, decades later, after he told me about this crazy job he had had when I was a toddler, it it just, it blew my mind because I thought, well, of course, now that I'm a parent, I understand 
how quick that time is between, oh, look at my little tiny baby and whoosh, they're off to college. It feels like the blink of an eye. So to my dad, the time between when he was running these drills for the end of the world and when I, his first baby, went off to college, that must have felt like a blink. And so in his own dad way, he was doing this like, here is something that will keep you safe. Non-perishable foods you could take into a bunker. Right. <laughs> and I, you know, at the time had no idea. I just thought my dad is so weird. What, you know, everybody else gets these normal care packages and I am getting like 40 pounds of canned peaches. <laughs> the currency, I've, I, I've heard this idea once before that to really try to understand people, we have to understand the coin of the realm, like in their yes. And and in his world, this was high value currency. Um, yeah. And I find that so moving. I I think maybe one of our jobs as adults is figuring out what our parents were trying to do. And oh my gosh, yes. Understanding maybe, oh gosh, okay. Well, even if I don't agree with it or don't like it, I I now understand what was behind it and I see a little bit more about them. Mm -hmm. And that's you you also talk about that because simultaneously with your the situation with your son you're also managing a situation where you start to confront the health and kind of mortality of, of your parents as well so you're, you're kind of the the sandwich generation bombshell oh, yeah. which is coming yeah. from both ways <laughs> yeah this it's a good it's a big sandwich generation book because it's yeah my parents are getting older my kids are getting older like <laughs> I'm sort of in the middle holding on to everybody going, just keep it in the road. If everybody can just keep it in the road for a minute. <laughs> Please. Now, I, I want to ask you a question, Mary Lara, if I may. And I, I, I don't really prep you for this and it might be kind of a hard to answer question and we'll just cut it out if you want. But okay. I mean, when I say in your intro that you're a very generous person, like that's really true. As long as I've known you, you have been able to see, or at least you really try hard to see, um, I don't want to just say the best in people. That's true, but that's not full fully describing this. You're able to usually use your empathy to come up with reasons why someone might be doing something in a certain way. And I've seen that in a lot of, I mean, I've seen that manifest in a lot of different um, contexts during the time that I've known you. You have a wonderful chapter in your book, actually, where you take a person who um, everyone else is thinking is just kind of losing their mind, crazy over the top college tour parent, and you um, back into maybe what was going on in that person's life. But has this ability, I mean, has this been something you've always done fairly well? Or is this like something you've, you've really worked out and practiced? Or is it kind of a both and? You're so kind to say all that. Um, I think part of it is just my natural worldview. I like to think that we are living in a, like sort of glass half full kind of thing. I like to think that we are living in a world of people who have mostly good intentions to think the other way would be very depressing. Like, you know, if, if you look out at the world and you see people doing things that are maybe not great and you go, oh, that's because everyone is destructive and terrible and has bad <laughs> motives. Like that's just a horrible way to live. Who wants to get up and walk around in that world? So I try and I always have to imagine, okay, what if people are really mostly have good intentions, but they just make mistakes? I mean, I do all the time. I have pretty good intentions, but I screw things up 
constantly really. And so if that's what everyone else is doing, then it, then at least I feel like it's safe for me to walk around out there. It's safe for my loved ones to walk around out there. We're walking around among people who mostly are trying to, to be good and do good. Um, I do have to concentrate on it. Sometimes there are some, sometimes it's really a stretch <laughs> to go, what could that person have been thinking that was maybe not the worst thing in the world? That was, maybe it was just a mistake or maybe, you know, maybe they had a bad day. It does take a little more effort sometimes. Right. Well, it's a, it's a really lovely theme. Um, listeners, as you read the books, it's, it's one of my favorite things about her work. I suppose we can all be, you know, not to beat a dead um, turtle, so to speak, because that's the <laughs> cover of your book. But I suppose we can all be bomb shelters for each other in in a way too, as we're we're kind of wandering through this this world, messing things up and and trying our best. And and that's hard. It's it's easy to give ourselves grace sometimes, and mm -hmm. not other people. Um, what was was there anything? I mean, the book is so powerful and so personal. Was there anything as you wrote about it? that surprised you like looking back was there a lesson that you had learned as a parent that maybe you didn't realize it until you were writing it or were there any surprises that came out of the process of writing this book that's a great question um yeah there are always surprises when i'm writing because i have to i write to a lot of people say this this is not an original thought but i write to figure out what i think if i can get it if i can make sense of it on the page then it's like oh that's what's in my brain i've made sense of it so really it's kind of always a surprise because i'm always sort of walking around with the static in my brain and then i get it written down and i go oh that's what it was that's what i was thinking um one of the things that i wrote about in bomb shelter is just how like the weird stories that stick in my head from childhood that I've always remembered. I sat down and did, I, I wrote a chapter where I just kind of laid all those out. I was like, here are eight stories, like super, super quick little vignettes that are stuck in there that I've always just thought that is so random. Why are those the things I remember? Like, why do I remember the story of my, <laughs> my mom told me this story when I was tiny little about how she had this pet duck named Fuzzy or something like that. And, and she loved this pet duck. And then one day she sat down for Easter dinner and at the end of dinner, she got up and went looking for her pet duck and she couldn't find it. And she found out that her grandmother had killed the duck and served it to the family. Like, why did that stick in my head? And so I sort of, you know, I kind of had fun with this book going back and picking up those little, little tiny pieces of shrapnel and going, all right, why did my brain hold on to these? What was, what was I mentally or emotionally trying to do? Like, was I holding onto these for later so that I could go, oh, you know, the world is full of people who will kill and eat your pets well that's weird you know why do or these Easter. things right <laughs> for Easter. exactly so it, it was it was a fun book to write in a way because I was sort of going through artifacts from different parts of my life and and thinking about why did these stick with me what were they preparing me for um you have so this is not a parenting book like per se but it is a. I think it's a, a profoundly um, important parenting book. It's not giving advice, but it's it's discussing things that are really common to parents that that we all experience, probably or should or will be experiencing. There's learning how other people respond to difficult situations can help inspire us. So all of those things are very much with parenting advice, and then also just this theme of 
as you learn from your parents. I, I say that because I just remembered, um, and I forgot to say this earlier, you have, just like you find out something useful about your dad that, that gives some clarification on what his intentions were with those kind of crazy pa- uh, care packages, there's a chapter I love in your first book where you lay out all of the facts about your mother and how she expected you to do in school. And you give two interpretations and it's actually a really brilliantly written chapter, but you lay out, here's what she did. And you give, I think the worst possible interpretation of it, or at least an ungenerous interpretation, but not untrue either. And then you flip it and you lay out the same facts and you give a much more generous interpretation. And so I I meant to say that, I'm sorry, I didn't bring that up with your dad, but you have these wonderful bookends with your mom in the first book and your dad in the second book. Um, Can you share just, do you mind just summarizing that chapter with your mom and what you just, I I love that so much. Yeah. I I mean, I think we all spend so much time we spend our whole lives trying to make sense of our childhoods and what our parents did or didn't do. And I spent so much of my time hoping and even trying to get my children to understand why I do the things that I do, like following them around the house. No, but Joe, you see, this is why I did this. This is why I have this rule. And they're walking away from me going, I don't even care. Um, that chapter is about, because I miss you when I blink is a lot about kind of struggling with my type A tendencies and why, how, why did I become someone who is this way, who can't relax and is always sort of um, worrying and and trying to do, you know, the best, best, best at everything. And I look back at the way I was raised and the way that academics were a part of our family life. And it is true that, you know, I was expected to make all A's. And if I did not, you know, if I made something that was not an A, it was not received well in my household. Um and I felt that, like I, I felt that, like in my little soul as a child, and it hurt. Um, and you can kind of look at that and go, well, so there it is. It's my mom's fault because of the way she treated me and the way she raised me. I became a control freak, and it's all her fault. Or you can look at the life I've had, which is really, I'm so grateful for the life I've had and the things I've been able to do and um, the successes that I've had, and go, you know what, she taught me to do all these things. Like because she pushed me, I became someone who achieved at a level that I did. And because she, um, you know, was my cheerleader who believed I could do even more than I believed I could do. I was able to do more than I might have otherwise. So maybe like my life is so great because my mom was willing to be the bad guy and push me or maybe both are true or maybe neither is true. I don't know. I love that so much. I think is the chapter called Wonder Woman. Am I right? Yes. Right. Yes. It's, it's just again, readers. You just you've got to get these books. Um, there's just so much really good stuff in them. Also, just minor digression. Um, not far away from that chapter is another one, and I will only say it involves, <laughs> sorry, squirrels and leaf blowers. And um, as I was reading it. Um, my wife thought there might be an earthquake going because I was reading it in bed one evening and suddenly our entire room was shaking because I, I just, I was laughing so hard over and over, but it was late at night. I was trying not to wake up anyone in the house. So I was being quiet. So anyway, it is also besides this grace and this wonderful generosity, um, she's just really funny. And it, it's, uh, these books have a lot of wit uh, as well as, as well as the warmth. So it's good stuff. Would you be so kind as to read us a chapter? Um, I actually asked her to read this chapter 
um, I was actually with Mary Lara once where she read this chapter to a um, an educational conference. And it was in this huge, big, massive kind of ballroom in like the Lowe's Vanderbilt Plaza. And it was lunchtime. So there's just a lot of ambient noise. Like even if people are listening, there's just, there's clink of a, you know, uh, floor kidding a plate or, or someone grabbing their glass and the, the rattle of ice. And there's just, you know, lots of noise. And so it was kind of noisy, but I mean, it was acceptable and polite. It wasn't like people were inattentive, but as Mary Lara started reading this chapter, I have really not ever heard a hush in a large space like this. <laughs> By the end of it, people were the only noise they heard were a couple sniffs. And as I looked out, I saw a few people kind of quickly wiping away their, you know, flicking a stray tear from their eyes. And when you hear this, you might understand why this is like educators who were hearing this. But I think a lot of people, and again, I, I know so many women who I think really found this book resonant and said important things. So I, I've asked her to read that. And would you would you be so kind? Yes, I would be happy to. Um, so this is, it's formatted a little differently from the rest of the book. It's kind of an intermission. It's written like a letter to, really, it's a letter to myself, but the name of the chapter is a letter to the type A person in distress. Hi, put down your phone and post-it notes for just a minute. I know you're busy rewriting your to-do list in your head, first chronologically, and then in order of task magnitude, and then visually like a pie chart with different colors for each slice of pie according to how long each thing will take. It takes concentration to keep the precision-tuned gears of your world machine clicking along, but you can spare a minute. I just want to tell you, your outfit today is spot on. Are you wearing seasonal socks? Damn right you are. That's a good look for you. Not only does everyone find your appearance neat, and visually pleasing, we all admire your words too. Your emails dance on the line between eloquence and candor. You have a real sense for when to go with bullet points instead of paragraphs, and you're always handy with an emoji or a culturally relevant movie clip. The dinner you made for your book club last night had to have taken you hours to plan and execute. I know you left the packaging from the grocery store sponge cake out on the counter because you wanted to make your friends a strawberry shortcake they would love, but you also didn't want anyone to roll their eyes and call you a perfectionist for making everything from scratch. People don't think about that sort of thing enough. You do. I want you to know that I see your face when someone parks over the line in a crowded parking lot and inadvertently wastes a whole second spot, and I know your scowl isn't really about the parking space. When you stop to pick up trash on a sidewalk or put the to-go menus back in their rack at the sandwich shop, you wish you didn't have to. You'd rather everyone else pull their weight, but if they won't, you will. You like having work to do, but it's hard for you to work alongside people who cut corners and blow off responsibilities. It feels like they're doing these things to spite you, like they slack off because they know you'll catch whatever balls they drop. You can't fathom how they can feel okay letting so many things remain half done. This leaves you in a constant state of simmering, low-grade resentment, and you feel guilty about occasionally having the urge to throw your laptop at someone's face. You wish these things didn't get to you. You want to live and let live. 
And I won't tell anybody, but I know you didn't really want to make costumes for the Community Center Spring Musical. You don't even like Mary Poppins, but you filled out the feedback form after last year's play because that's what you're supposed to do if you attend, fill out the feedback form. And because you were so detailed, because that's what you should do, you should give details if someone asks for your input, they asked you to do the costumes this year. And you said yes, because that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to give help when someone asks for it. And now you're stuck trying to figure out how to make Mary Poppins' dress fit around the cast on the young actor's broken arm. And you want the play to be great, but you wish you hadn't said yes. And you're mad that no one else said yes, and that the same people always end up doing everything. You wish you could take a break from carrying everything. It's all so heavy. You are so tired. I know. And I know you can't help it. I know that even if you wound the clock all the way back to the first time you can remember being this way, the moment you perceived that when you got things right, you got love, that when you achieved, you felt peace, that there'd probably still be no way to undo it. It's in your nature. It wouldn't matter if that moment or any other moment had happened differently. You see yourself the way you think the world sees you. So you value yourself only when you are accomplishing and producing and finishing and succeeding. If you can't value yourself, then there's no reason to get up every morning. And if there's no reason to get up, then what? You feel untethered, as if someone has turned off gravity and you've been spun into infinite space, a black hole that demands, what's the point of you? It would be embarrassing to explain all that to someone, I know. It's awfully existential and weird to feel that if you get the punctuation wrong in a tweet, the world is a purposeless void. Not everyone gets it. So they don't get that if you worry that much over the little things, the big things seem so much bigger than they already are. It's bad enough wondering whether you've bought the right kind of sunscreen. Are you living the right life? Should you change paths? Go back to school? Stay together or break up? Are you being the right kind of parent, daughter, sister, friend? And I know that the more you do, the more it takes to feel like you've done enough. That's why you say sure to everything and sweat all the small stuff. Then you can be the person who gets the job done and saves the day. And then maybe you can rest. So let me tell you, I approve of the organic lip balm in the eco-friendly tube that you used this morning because it's good for your skin and also good for the planet. I saw that you waited at the four-way stop until it was your turn. I noticed that you RSVP'd to the invitations in your inbox promptly. Good work. You nailed it. All of it. I know how much you need to hear this. I can never hear it enough. That's probably the second or third time I've heard you read that and I've read it myself and it's just beautiful. Thank you so much. And thank you. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there going, yay, preach. Thank you. So thank you for all the the silent people who uh, love that and that really will resonate with it. That is such a powerful chapter. I just, um, and listeners, maybe you can understand why suddenly this vast cavernous ballroom was just silent um after she read that it's so lovely and and um 
again, it, it follows sort of this pattern of, of your writing that's so generous, so honest, like you don't sugarcoat things and you don't um, pretend things aren't difficult when they are, but you you write with such a, a generous grace. So thank you. Thank you. Excuse me. Um, I know you, you're very protective of writing about your daughter. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's an interesting reason for that. Do you mind... Mm -hmm. Do you mind sharing that? And then also, do you mind then if I share an anecdote, if I don't mention her name? Sure. Yeah. So, okay. I'm, yeah, I'm very protective of my kids' privacy generally. Um, and I know that probably sounds sort of oxymoronic to say I'm a memoirist and I'm super concerned with privacy, but I am. I'm a very private person um, and I'm super, super vigilant about protecting my family's privacy. The, the, the stories and the tidbits that I bring out to weave into books are such a tiny, tiny percentage of our real lives. and it, and particularly anytime someone who's not me appears in a story, it, it's such a, it's just the minimal amount of that person that I need to be able to tell that story. Um, so I'm protective of them generally. I'm also protective of her um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, she's, she's a girl and I feel like there's this sort of, I don't know, we live in a time in our culture where girls bodies and girls selves are just <laughs> up for debate in a way that they shouldn't be, <laughs> you know? Um, and that drives me crazy. And also she's, I mean, as you know, cause she was your student, she's a performer, she's an actor and she's a very good actor. And so she's good at sort of giving the audience what they want and giving the role, what it demands and becoming whatever is expected of her in a situation. And I, I always want to make sure that She's not living her real life in such a way that she's just becoming what everyone expects or doing what everyone else wants, that she's always, you know, living true to herself. Um, and so I'm especially protective of her in that way. Sometimes when I'm sitting in the audience of a, you know, an auditorium or a theater or whatever, and I see her up there acting and I look around at like the strangers around me in the theater who are just wrapped and they're looking at her and they're clapping. And I just want to be like, she is not yours. <laughs> she, you, you bought the ticket, but you did not buy her. And she's not mine either. She, you know, she is herself. Um, so I have this fear, I think because of the fact that she has chosen performance as her life. I'm extra protective of her. I want to make sure she always has her own interior life that is hers only. Yeah. That was something that I thought you um, explicated really beautifully in Bomb Shelter, but it, it made me think a lot about, well, many things, um, society's expectations of girls and women and just uh, how we respond as parents to our children growing up. It's just an interesting thing. The, the the anecdote I wanted to share with everyone um, is that, so Mary Lara's daughter, um, I, I did, I taught her for three years uh, during the day at school. She was in plays in the afternoon and she took voice lessons with me once a week. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I, I don't saying like I'm a, an expert, but I feel like I saw her in a lot of different situations. And one thing I noticed is that in a, class of people who I love dearly, but it was a, it wasn't maybe a complex social class. There were, there were complicated social dynamics, which is very normal middle school. Um, but somehow your daughter never seemed at least to be drawn into it. It didn't seem to rent a lot of space in her head. And so I finally asked her one day and I just said, 
why is it that you just have never seemed to have been caught up in this and you don't even really seem to be that worried about it either? And she paused for a moment, she kind of tilted her head to one side slightly. Um, and then she smiled and she said, I've just found that if I make the kindest possible choice in every situation, life just really works out very well. And then, um, so I, I, I go back to that all the time, trying to remember that. Um, and so first of all, just the, the wisdom in that, but, um, the fact that she zeroed in on kindness too, and that she found out, I mean, I can imagine lots of kids saying, well, as long as I'm just tough and strong, life goes well, or as long as I, um, as long as I, you know, as long as I'm the one that excludes everyone else, no one excludes me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's very middle school logic, isn't it? (laughs) Right. We're dealing with very middle school brains. So I was, I was struck by her, by the wisdom in that. And also the, the, of course she's very articulate because she's your child. Um, but anyway, I, I'm curious, this is an interesting thing that comes up as we talk about parenting. Um, how much is nature and how much is nurture? I know from kind of conversations with you over the years, you you are very quick to just say you had great material to work with and it's true you do. But <clears throat> I'm curious, when you hear that anecdote, does that resonate with you and you think, oh, good, she picked up things that I've tried to teach her? Or mm-hmm. or is it truly like, wow, that just that came out of nowhere? I think it's a little of both. I mean, I, I have two kids who are three years apart. And they are both, what they have in common is that they are both um, really loving, very, very loving people. They're both very funny um, and they're both smart in different ways, but personality-wise, mannerisms, they're so different from one another, just two really different human beings. So that kind of tells me that they are who they are, regardless of what I try to apply to their little, you know molded clay of baby people when they were small. Like, I don't know. I don't know how much I really had to do with the people that they turned into because they turned into such distinctly different and equally wonderful humans. Um, I will say if there's any theme to my parenting, it is that I do not know what I'm doing. I feel completely clueless 99% of the time, but the 1% that I know is if in doubt, and and this is like for myself as a person, but also teaching them, like if if in doubt, do the kind thing. It's like, and I'm in doubt all the time, <laughs> like constantly in <laughs> doubt. And I think they were in doubt a lot. So that may have seeped into kind of our family ethos purely because it's all I had. Like I never, I never knew what I was doing. I, I in one of the books, I don't even remember which book. I tell the story about how I went for a it was kindergarten, I think, or maybe preschool, like a teacher conference where you sit down at the tiny table on the tiny chairs. And and this was with my first kid. The teacher said, um, we have a problem. He doesn't know how to cut with scissors. They're all supposed to know how to cut with scissors and he doesn't know how. And I was shocked. I was like, scissors? Are we, but they're three. We're supposed to be giving, I thought we were supposed to keep the sharp stuff away from them. I remember walking out of that conference going, how did everyone else know when it was time to stop hiding the sharp stuff and give them, how did they know? And I have felt that way for 20 years. I never know what I'm supposed to be doing. The only thing I know, like truly the only thing I have any confidence in is if in doubt, do the kind thing. It's just the only thing I know. Well, and, and I will say that that is 
that is a very funny story. Um, I think actually it explains in my mind why your kids have, I think are really great kids and have done wonderful things. But I think one of the the things I am really concerned of is about parenting today. And I'm, I'm really quite delighted that my youngest is almost out of high school. I'm, I really feel badly for parents today, but mm -hmm. I actually think one of the problems is that too many parents think they know when they should do stuff. Like in other words, oh, yeah. the parents who, who somehow knew to give their kids the sharp stuff at whenever the magic age is two and a half um, to kind of extend your analogy <laughs> are also the ones who are with good intentions, but are also giving their kids phones at 10 or, mm -hmm. and, and there's more and more parenting by kind of hive mind. It's, it feels like to mm -hmm. me, or more and more parenting based on, and it's, I don't want to reduce this to just that everyone's trying to keep up with the Joneses, but a lot of parents today, I notice are looking around to take cues from other people a little mm -hmm. more than I remember either as a parent in the past or as working with parents as a, as a mm -hmm. teacher in the past. So that, that may actually have been one of the greatest gifts you gave your children, honestly, unwittingly. <laughs> was my complete ignorance. <laughs> Not knowing when to do that. Complete this. ignorance and confusion is the great gift I gave my children. That was going to be the case no matter what. I still don't know what I'm doing. I, I've, I'm so grateful for parents of kids who are older than mine, like people who I can call and go, Hey, how does curfew work? Like, what's that? <laughs> I don't know what I would do if I couldn't call these people. I guess, I don't know. It's such an interesting observation on your part that there's more hive mind. I think social media probably contributes to that. Um, it probably could contribute in a good way. Like if everyone was, you know, listening to you and, and reading things that made sense, it could be great, but there's so much out there. That's just, um, just people talk, people who also don't know what they're doing, but are kind of talking about it like they do and maybe sound like voices of authority. And so people go, oh, so-and-so says you do this. And so it's probably very, I, I imagine even more confusing now than it ever was when we were all in our little yeah. bunkers, just ignorantly trying to figure it out on our own, which I still am because I'm kind of a hermit, but yeah, I don't know what I'm doing ever. Well, you know, I didn't, I didn't write that in the intro, but I should have said that you and I are both confirmed um, yard hermits. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Totally. So, yes, um, I'll I'll often send her quiet solidarity when I see a tweet, but can't can't be bothered to actually do anything. But <laughs> send good wishes from my yard to her yard as we're yeah. each other. So I, now this, um, okay, listeners, I I'm going to this is I think going to embarrass Mary Lara. I actually I know it well, but I think there's a good reason for it. So one of the things you you may not know, Mary Lara, is the the um, how quickly you become a very trusted, credible voice. When you left the school, um, just about everyone I knew, teachers, parents, um, staff members, all thought really highly of you. And oh, you wow. you were able to build. And so that's, first of all, just a nice encomium, and we should tell you those things. But I was hoping you could help us tease out a few things. You were able to have enormously positive interactions, or at least leave people behind thinking that you'd had positive interactions. But I know there were also problems. You weren't always happy with the way things were handled, or, or this happened and that happened. And I, I, mean, I remember a few of them. Um, 
but yet you were able to address these. So one of the things I'm always trying to ask parents who don't don't purport to be parenting experts, though, is tell me what works or how did you do this? Um, I don't know that it was conscious, but I'm just curious if you can think a little bit about, you know, we all struggle to know when we should contact a school about something. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what do we do? When should we? When shouldn't we? We don't want to overparent. We don't hover, but sometimes we need to. How when we do that? What what steps should we take? I think that is a, actually something that is a skill that can be learned, and so I'm I've started wanting to ask people that, and you're one of the people who I've seen really demonstrate that skill. So, if you don't mind reflecting on that, I'd love to hear mm-hmm. your thoughts. Um. Well, first of all, that's tremendously kind, and I'm very glad that I that I did leave a good impression <laughs> if I did. Um, it, I think it, it probably goes back to the same thing, which is that I do not know what I'm doing. And so to me, the teachers and staff and school people who are with my kid for most of their waking hours, which is the case. I mean, my children really, they spend, they've spent more time with their school people than at home because they're asleep most of the time they're here. Um, They're kind of co-parents. And so, you know, when my kids were in middle school, you were helping us raise our kids. The teachers were helping us raise our kids. You know, that school was, was, that was a co-parent for us. Um, And truly I did always feel and still do like, I don't know what I'm doing. And like, I, someone please tell me what we're supposed to be doing. And so I, I generally default to a state of absolute gratitude to teachers. And I, I, and I know people say that a lot and I really don't mean it to sound cheesy. Like, oh, I'm so grateful for teachers. Aren't we all, but like truly without the teachers who have been part of my kids' lives, my kids would only be half raised. I mean, we, we don't know what we're doing. So when we would go, just to give an example, when, when um, so both my kids were involved in the theater program at the school where you are. And so I did this twice with, with each of them. When they first are involved in any kind of show, you make the parents come and listen to this talk that you give about failure and rejection and how we handle it. And that, you know, kids are not gonna get every role they audition for it's going to be hard. It's going to hurt. What matters most of all is how they handle that difficulty. And you, and you lay it out in steps. You're like, okay, they get two hours to go sob in their room and then they get up and they have to um, call or email the person who got the role they wanted and congratulate them. And then they can go out to Chick-fil-A and eat whatever they want. Like, I remember writing that down going two hours, cry in your room. Okay. Make the call, go to Chick-fil-A. Like that was a lifeline to me. You were teaching me how to teach my children to handle rejection. And that's just one example. You know, we had math teachers and science teachers and English teachers who were teaching our children how to do things and by extension, teaching us how to teach them to do things. So even when something was handled in a different way than I might have liked, which I think is inevitable. I mean, if you think about even within a household, if you have a co-parent, if you if you have a spouse or or the child's co-parent, even in that small of a scale, there are going to be times when you don't agree on what you're doing. Like my husband and I often will have conversations where I'm like, so we agree that this is what we're going to do, right? And he's like, absolutely not. And we go back and forth until we get it settled. So inevitably, if you're talking on a much larger scale about 
uh, an entire school that has to serve hundreds or, or potentially even thousands of kids and a family, there are going to be at times when you, when you disagree, but I never came at it thinking I know best. And I'm going to tell you <laughs> because I don't know what I'm doing. So I, I was always grateful to hear, even when I ultimately didn't change my mind and thought, well, I still don't like how they're doing that. I was always really grateful to hear the why behind, you know, this is why this class is run this way. And, and we give them this much homework because of this, and it's to teach them this. And even when I would walk away going, well, that's not how I would do it. I would also think not that I know what I'm doing. So I, it, there's a huge amount of trust and gratitude as kind of the foundation of, of my whole relationship with anyone who works at a school where my kids are. I, I can't, I just, I can't imagine going in and being like, let me tell you how to do your job. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how you do your job. I'm amazed by anyone who does your job. Well, thank you. You're, you are so kind. I, I think what you haven't used the word, honestly, because you're, it would immediately be contradictory, but I think also I hear a lot of humility, um, being willing to say, I don't know what I'm doing and therefore asking for help. And that's what I, I remember having an interaction where you, you just came in and said, I'm not asking you to solve this or try to get addressed. I just, I'm not sure how to, what to do now. I, mm -hmm. your childhood just had a, an unpleasant and interaction and it was more than just unpleasant. It left you feeling that there was something that was going to be, there was a bad um, lesson they would draw from it. And you, so mm -hmm. you felt you needed it to address it, but you started out by asking questions. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I mean, I don't know. That's the, the, the funny thing about parenting is I have five of them and I teach hundreds of them, but they're all so different that I don't know mm -hmm. that you ever really know what you're doing. Yeah. Because as soon as you think you do, you have a new student or a new child who's totally different than the others. Right. We're always starting from scratch. I think the one thing maybe that you learn with a couple kids or with time is that it's okay to not know what you're doing and mm -hmm. you can get help. And so that's, um, I put that out there because I think we often feel like there's experts who have the right answers for everything. And often there are people who can guide us, but I think so much of this is trying to figure things out as, as we go. Yeah. And I also want to acknowledge, I, I, I think I, I know not everyone's children are in a great school um, and, and maybe people aren't always going to be as well intentioned and things, but I, I do, I appreciate you sharing that because I do think that that, stance going into something being open and humble and curious and then standing your ground by all means when you need to but the the first the opening bid doesn't have to be um, aggressive it can be curious yeah. and grateful actually even I think that's really powerful do you feel like you're usually able to get the big things addressed with this attitude or did it leave you sometimes wondering maybe I should have been tougher. No, I mean, there have, I mean, in all honesty, there haven't been that many times over the years that I felt like I need to go address something. So that's maybe part of it is that I let a lot of stuff go. Um, well, that's a lesson in itself too, though. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about it, like there's so much that, and you, and you taught us this, like there's so much kids can learn from hard experiences like rejection or like failure, you know, it may, even if I don't agree with necessarily the failing grade here or the the way this particular experience is handled, if I can see that my kid's going to learn something good from it, 
I mean, why not just let it be and, and have the conversation at home where you go, yeah, you know, the way the math teacher runs that class is, is maybe not how you would run a class or not how I would run a class, but that's how the math teacher runs the class. And now that you know that, you need to know that you got to go in there with your papers all orderly and your homework done. And you need to be two minutes early, even if technically you shouldn't be counted late if you're on time, because that's just how she runs the class and you need to be there. Learn it. You know, like that's a lesson. Learn, you know, learn the rules of of the world you're in and and do it. So really the only times I felt like I've I've needed to say something or or if I had a concern for somebody's safety or if I thought really the person, like someone at school doesn't get that my kid's actually taking a bad lesson from this. Like you're, you're, you might inadvertently be teaching them something you don't mean to be teaching them. And, and could we just get square on that? Um, but I do feel like the way to start, and this is why I would always come to you and be like, what do I do here? The way to start is to find out what works well in this environment. And every school is probably different, just like every workplace is different. And some places want you to, you know, first send an email to this person and then we escalate it and then we do this. And other places are like, no, just call us on the phone or come in person or whatever. So I feel like if you can kind of learn what works well at this place for getting things done and try to go at it in that way versus, you know, doing the, you know, first instinctive knee-jerk thing that comes to you, which for a lot of us in this this age is writing like a 75 paragraph email. <laughs> Don't do that. Um <laughs> just asking what what would work here. Like I've got I've, I've got a concern that I actually do need to bring up what would be the best way to do it. And then listen when someone tells you this is the best way to do it. Well that's actually wonderful. Thank you. I'm I'm wanting to draw more kind of practical parenting things in. So I appreciate that. Well, you have been, as always, very generous with your time. And I'm so grateful for you being here. Readers, I would just highly, highly recommend that you um, check out her books. And they're, they're just phenomenal. She's also on Twitter. She's a, a, a or on X, I guess. Um, barely. I'm barely we, there anymore. We're barely there anymore. All right. Yeah. Well, it used to be, it used to be fun. I'm um, kind of on Instagram a little. Are you doing more Instagram? Yeah. Well, look her up. You'll just be fun, fun stuff, good stuff during a, um, well, there's a lot of just fun memories I could tell, but I won't. Um, Thank you so much, Mary Lara. The last thing I'll say readers is if you do read Bomb Shelter and you read about her child, her daughter performing, I just want to say she was every bit as good as Mary Lara describes her as being, and actually maybe even, maybe even she undersold it a little bit. So when you, (laughs) when you read those chapters, it's not just a parent kind of being, um, just being a little proud of super, super gifted performer. And, and the, her older son is also just wonderful human. Um, I will tell them you said that. So we'll please give them all my love and thank you again for your time. Of course. Thank you for having me. And everyone, again, if you could leave a rating, preferably a glowing rating, but a rating of any kind on Apple Podcasts or the podcast uh, platform of your choice, I would be so grateful. We'll talk to you in two more weeks. Until then, happy parenting. You've got this.